chapter twenty eight of yon of the windmill this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. yon of the windmill by juliana horatia ewing chapter twenty eight mr ford's client the history of jan's father amabel and bogey the second among the many sounds blended into that one which roared for ever round mr ford's offices in the city was the cry of the newsboys horful particulars of the plague in a village in shire they screamed under the windows not that mr ford heard them but in five minutes the noiseless door opened and a clerk laid the morning paper on the table and withdrew in silence mr ford cut it leisurely with a large ivory knife and skimmed the news his eye happened to fall upon the rector's letter which after a short summary of the history of the fever pointed out the objects for which help was immediately required there was a postscript to give some idea of the ravages of the epidemic and as a proof that the calamity was not exaggerated a list of some of the worst cases was given with names and particulars it was gloomy enough mary smith lost her husband a labourer and six children between the second and the ninth of the month george harness a blacksmith lost his wife and four children master abel lake windmiller of the tower mill lost all his children five in number between the fifth and the fifteenth of the month his wife's health is completely broken up at this point mr ford dropped the paper and unlocking a drawer beside him referred to some memoranda after which he cut out the rector's letter with a large pair of office scissors and enclosed it in one which he wrote before proceeding to any other business he had underlined one name in the doleful list abel lake windmiller some hours later the silent clerk ushered in a visitor one of mr ford's clients he was a gentleman of middle height and middle age the younger half of middle age though his dark hair was prematurely grey his eyes were black and restless and his manner at once haughty and nervous i am very glad to see you my dear sir said mr ford suavely i had just written you a note the subject of which i can now speak about and as he spoke mr ford tore open the letter which lay beside him whilst his client was saying we are only passing through town on our way to scotland i shall be here two nights you remember instructing me that it was your wish to economize as much as possible during the minority of your son said mr ford his client nodded i think continued the man of business there is a quarterly payment we have been in the habit of making on your account which is now at an end 
and as he spoke he pushed the rector's letter across the table with his fingers upon the name abel lake windmiller his client always spoke stiffly which made the effort with which he now spoke less noticed by the lawyer i should like to be certain he said i mean that there is no exaggeration or mistake you have never communicated with the man or given him any chance of pestering you said mr ford i should hardly do so now i think i certainly kept the power of reopening communication in my own hands knowing nothing of the man but i should be sorry to discontinue the allowance under a a mistake of any kind mr ford meditated it may be said here that he by no means knew all that the reader knows of jan's history but he saw that his client was anxious not to withhold the money if the child were alive i think i have it my dear sir he said suddenly allow me to write in my own name to this worthy clergyman i must ask you to subscribe to his fund in my name which will form an excuse for the letter and i will contrive to ask him if the list of cases has been printed accurately and has his sanction if there has been any error we shall hear of it the object of the subscription is let me see is a monument to those who have died of the fever and but the dark gentleman had started up abruptly thank you thank you mr ford he said your plan is as usual excellent pray oblige me by sending ten guineas in your own name and you will let me know if if there is any mistake i will call in to-morrow about other matters and before mr ford could reply his client was gone the peculiar solitude to be found in the crowded heart of london was grateful to his present mood to have been alone with his thoughts in the country would have been intolerable the fields smack of innocence and alone with them the past is apt to take the simple tints of right and wrong in the memory but in that seething mass which represents ten thousand heartaches and anxieties doubtful shifts and open sins as bad or worse than a man's own there is a silent sympathy and no reproach mr ford's client did not lean back the tension of his mind was too great he sat stiffly and gazed vacantly before him half seeing and half transforming into other visions whatever lay before the hansom as it wound its way through the streets now for a moment a four-wheeled cab loaded with schoolboy luggage occupied the field of view and idle memories of his own boyhood flitted over it then crawling behind a dray some strange associations built up the barrels into an old weather-stained wooden house in holland and for a while an intense realization of past scenes which love had made happy put present anxieties to sleep but they woke again with a horrible pang as a grim hideous funeral car drove slowly past nodding like a nightmare 
as the traffic became less dense and the cab went faster the man's thoughts went faster too he strove to do what he had not often tried to review his life he had unconsciously gained the will to do it because a reparation which conscience might hitherto have pressed on him was now impossible and because the plague that had desolated abel lake's home had swept the skeleton out of his own cupboard and he could repent of the past and do his duty in the future his conscience was stronger than his courage he had long wished to repent though he had not found strength to repair on one point he did not delude himself as he looked back over his life he had no sentimental regrets for the careless happiness of youth is any period of human life so tormented with cares as a self-indulgent youth he had been a slave to expensive habits to social traditions to past follies ever since he could remember he had been in debt in pocket or in conscience from his schoolboy days to this hour his tradesmen were paid long since and if death had cancelled what else he owed how easy virtue would henceforth be it had not been easy at the date of his first marriage he was deeply in debt and out of favour with his father it was on both accounts that he went abroad for some months in holland he married his wife was jan's mother and jan was their only child her people were of middle rank leading quiet though cultivated lives her mother was dead and she was her old father's only child it would be doing injustice to the kind of love with which she inspired her husband to dwell much upon her beauty though it was of that high type which takes possession of the memory for ever she was very intensely brilliantly fair so that in a crowd her face shone out like a star time never dimmed one golden thread in her hair and death who had done so much for mr ford's client could not wash that face from his brain it blotted the traffic out of the streets and in their place dutch pastures whose rich green levels were unbroken by hedge or wall stretched flatly to the horizon it bent over a drawing on his knee as he and she sat sketching together in an old-world orchard where the trees bore more moss than fruit the din of london was absolutely unheard by mr ford's client but he heard her voice saying you must learn to paint cattle if you mean to make anything of dutch scenery and also where the earth gives so little variety one must study the sky we have no mountains but we have clouds it was in the orchard under the apple tree across the sketch-book that they had plighted their troth ten years ago they were married had he ever denied himself a single gratification because it would add another knot to the tangle of his career he had pacified creditors by incurring fresh debts and had evaded catastrophes by involving himself in new complications all his life his marriage was accomplished at the expense of a train of falsehoods 
but his father-in-law was an unworldly old man not difficult to deceive he spent most of the next ten months in holland and apart from his anxieties it was the purest happiest time he had ever known then his father recalled him peremptorily to england when mr ford's client obeyed his father's summons the climax of his difficulties seemed at hand the old man was anxious for a reconciliation but resolved that his son should settle in life and he had found a wife for him the daughter of a scotch nobleman young handsome and with a good fortune he gave him a fortnight for consideration if he complied the old man promised to pay his debts to make him a liberal allowance and to be in every way indulgent if he thwarted his plans he threatened to allow him nothing during his lifetime and to leave him nothing that he could avoid bequeathing at his death it was at this juncture that jan's mother followed her husband to england her anxieties were not silenced by excuses which satisfied her father the crisis could hardly have been worse mr ford's client felt that confession was now inevitable and that he could confess more easily by letter when he reached london but before the letter was written his wife died weak men harassed by personal anxieties become hard in proportion to their selfish fears it is like the cruelty that comes of terror he had loved his wife but he was terribly pressed and there came a sense of relief even with the bitterness of the knowledge that he was free he took the body to holland to be buried under the shadow of the little wooden church where they were married and to the desolate old father he promised to bring his grandson jan but just after the death of an old nurse in whose care he had placed his child another crisis came to mr ford's client on the same day he got letters from his father and from his father-in-law from the first to press his instant return home from the second to say that if he could not at once bring jan the old man would make the effort of a voyage to england to fetch him jan's father almost hated him that the child should have lived when the beloved mother died was in itself an offence but that that freedom and peace and prosperity which were so dearly purchased by her death should be risked afresh by him was irritating to a degree he was frantic it was impossible to fail that very peremptory old gentleman his father it was out of the question to allow his father-in-law to come to england he could not throw away all his prospects and the more he thought of it the more certain it seemed that jan's existence would for ever tie him to holland that for his grandson's sake the old man would investigate his affairs and that the truth would come out sooner or later the very devil suggested to him that if the child had died with his mother he would have been quite free and intercourse with holland would have died away naturally he wished to forget to a nature of his type when even such a love as he had been privileged to enjoy had become a memory involving pain it was instinctively evaded like any other unpleasant thing he resolved at last to let nothing stand between him and reconciliation with his father once more 
he must desperately mortgage the future for present emergencies he wrote to the old father-in-law to say that the child was dead he excused this to himself on the ground of jan's welfare if the truth became fully known and his father threw him off he would be a poor embarrassed man and could do little for his child but with his father's fortune and perhaps the scotch lady's fortune it would be in his power to give jan a brilliant future even if he never fully acknowledged him as yet he hardly recognized such an unnatural possibility he said to himself that when he was free all would be well and the dutch grandfather would forgive the lie in the joy of discovering that jan was alive and would be so well provided for mr ford's client was reconciled to his father he married lady adelaide and announced the marriage to his father-in-law after which his intercourse with holland died out it was a curious result of a marriage so made that it was a very happy one still more curious was the likeness both physical and mental between the second wife and the first lady adelaide was half scotch and half english a blonde of the most brilliant type and of an intellectual order of beauty but fair women are common enough it was stranger still that the best affections of two women of so high a moral and intellectual standard should have been devoted to the same and to such a husband not quite in vain indeed but for that grievous sin towards his eldest son mr ford's client would probably have become an utterly different man but there is no rising far in the moral atmosphere with a wilful unrepented sin as a clog it was a miserable result of the weakness of his character that he could not see that the very nobleness of lady adelaide's should have encouraged him to confess to her what he dared not trust to his father's imperious petulant affection but he was afraid of her it had been the same with his first wife he had dreaded that she should discover his falsehoods far more than he had feared his father-in-law and years of happy companionship made it even less tolerable to him to think of lowering himself in lady adelaide's regard but there was a far more overwhelming consideration which had been gathering strength for eight years between him and the idea of recognizing jan as his eldest son and his heir he had another son lady adelaide's only child if he had hesitated when the boy was only a baby to tell her that her darling was not his only son it was less and less easy to him to think of bringing jan of whom he knew nothing from the rough life of the mill to supplant lady adelaide's child when the boy grew more charming as every year went by clever sweet-tempered of aristocratic appearance idolized by the relatives of both his parents he seemed made by providence to do credit to the position to which he was believed to have been born mr ford's client had almost made the resolve against which that fair face that was not lady adelaide's forever rose up in judgment he was just deciding to put jan to school and to give up all idea of taking him home when the death seemed once more to have solved his difficulties 
and unwonted ease came into his heart surely heaven knowing how sincerely he wished to be good was making goodness easy to him was permitting him to settle with his conscience on cheaper terms than those of repentance and restitution and indeed if amendment of the weak as well as of the strong be god's great purpose for us who shall say that the ruggedness of the narrow road is not often smoothed for stumbling feet the fever seemed quite providential and mr ford's client felt quite pious about it he was conscious of no mockery in dwelling to himself on the thought that jan was better off in paradise with his mother and he himself was safe for the first time since he could remember free at last to become worthier with no black shadow at his heels very touching was his resolve that he would be a better father to his son than his own father had been to him if he could not train him in high principles and self-restraint he would at least be indulgent to the consequences of his own indulgence and never drive him to those fearful straits but he'll be a very different young man from what i was was his final thought thanks to his good mother his mind was full of lady adelaide's goodness as he entered his house and she met him in the hall ah edward she cried i am so glad you've come home i want you to see that quaint child i was telling you about i don't remember my dear said mr ford's client you're looking very tired said lady adelaide gently but about the child it is lady louisa ammaby's little girl you know i met her just before we left brighton i only saw the child once but it is the quaintest most original little being so unlike its mother she and her mother are in town and they were going out to luncheon to-day i found so i asked the child here to dine with d'arcy her bun is taking off her things and i must go and bring her down as lady adelaide went out her son came in and rushed up to his father if mr ford's client had failed in natural affection for one son his love for the other had a double intensity he put his arm tenderly round him whilst the boy told some long childish story which was not finished when lady adelaide returned leading amabel by the hand amabel was a good deal taller her large feet were adorned with ornamental thread socks and leathern shoes buttoned round the ankle her hair was cropped because lady craikshaw said this made it grow she wore a big pinafore by the same authority in spite of which she carried herself with an admirable dignity the same candour good sense and resolution shone from her clear eyes and fat cheeks as of old mr ford's client was alarming to children but amabel shook hands courageously with him she was accustomed to exercise courage in her behaviour from her earliest days a standard of manners had been expected of her beyond her age it was a consequence of her growth you're quite a big girl now was a nursery reproach addressed to her at least two years before the time and she tried valiantly to live up to her inches but when amabel saw d'arcy she started and stopped short won't you shake hands with my boy amabel said lady adelaide oh you must make friends with him and he'll give you a ride on the rocking-horse after dinner surely such a big girl can't be shy goaded by the old reproach amabel made an effort 
and advancing by herself held out her hand and said how do you do bogy d'arcy's black eyes twinkled with merriment how do you do mother bunch said he my dear d'arcy said lady adelaide reproachfully mamma i am not rude i am only joking she calls me bogy so i call her mother bunch but i am not mother bunch said amabel and i am not bogy retorted d'arcy yes you are said amabel only you had very old clothes on in the wood lady craikshaw had cruelly warned lady adelaide that amabel sometimes told stories and thinking that the child was romancing lady adelaide tried to change the subject but d'arcy cried oh do let her talk mamma i do so like her she is such fun you oughtn't to laugh at me said poor amabel as d'arcy took her into the dining-room i gave you my paint-box the boy's stare of amazement awoke a doubt in amabel's mind of his identity with the bogey of the woods between constantly peeping at him and her anxiety to conduct herself conformably to her size in the etiquette of the dinner-table she did not eat much when dinner was over and d'arcy led her away to the rocking-horse he asked do you still think i'm bogey no said amabel i think perhaps you're not but you're very like him though you talk differently do you make pictures d'arcy shook his head not even of leaves said amabel when she was going away d'arcy asked which do you like best me or bogey amabel pondered i like you very much you made the rocking-horse go so fast but i liked bogey he carried me all up the hill and he picked up my moss i wasn't afraid of him i gave him a kiss well give me a kiss said d'arcy but there was a tone of raillery in his voice which put amabel on her dignity and she shook her head and began to go down the steps of the house one leg at a time if i'm bogey you know you have kissed me once shouted d'arcy but amabel's wits were as well developed as her feet once is enough for bogies said she and went sturdily away End of chapter twenty eight